This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We would like to express our gratitude to those who said they were glad to have us back last week when we made our first reappearance on the airwaves for quite some many months. We would like to add that it is a pleasure to be back. We are pleased to see that since we talked about the Oroville Dam on last week's program, there's been no further mayhem. It seems pretty clear we're not out of the woods yet, but uh, with our fingers crossed, we hope that everything at the dam will continue to hold and that everybody can go home. One thing we are far behind on is discussing Donald Trump, who, as you may have noticed, got elected president last November, allegedly. We do have our doubts about that. We're going to talk about that and other things in our second segment, which will pretty much be devoted, I think, to the 45th president of the United States. What we're going to probably do in our first segment today is concentrate more on science topics and studies because those tend to be a little more up, you know what I mean? At any rate, for our quote of the day for today's program, we'll start with something said by H.L. Mencken back in, I think, the 1920s, which was that democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard. And our quip of the week comes from General James Mattis, currently our Secretary of Defense. He said some time ago, I'm not sure when, well, this is a bit of advice he was passing out some time ago, I'm not sure when, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet. Words of wisdom from Mad Dog Mattis. I didn't realize this, but for the second time in American history, an active general is the U.S. Secretary of Defense. That contravenes a certain number of laws, perhaps the Constitution, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, when, the, when this situation arises, they obtain a waiver, I believe, from Congress to allow a sitting general to have a cabinet post. The one time this happened previously was when General George Marshall agreed to assume that role under President Harry Truman. And you know, General George Marshall is probably a guy who'd be worthy of a, a full segment of his own in some future program. During World War II, he served as the overall coordinator between the European and Pacific fronts and would have been given the job of, of organizing the D-Day landing, except that FDR felt he could not dispense with George Marshall's talents and insisted he remain in Washington. Thus, the job fell to Dwight Eisenhower. Anyway, I find George Marshall to be a very interesting topic uh, based on some reading I've been doing of late. I do note that when Truman retired from office and was asked about who had made the largest contribution in the last 30 years to American life, he unhesitatingly said, George Marshall. And to that, I would add that supposedly Orson Welles in the Dick Cavett show volunteered at one point that George Marshall was the most outstanding individual he'd ever met. To which we would add, the jury remains out on Mad Dog Mattis. I think that for our joke of the day, we're going to combine an anecdote, because even though it's not a joke per se, it certainly can be looked at as one. New Scientist magazine noted a couple weeks back that those helpful spooks at the Central Intelligence Agency have now put more than 12 million declassified documents online for the first time. 
allowing amateur sleuths and conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote, to sift through a treasure trove related to everything from tunnels dug under the Berlin Wall to secondhand reports of Soviet UFO sightings. One report in particular caught the magazine's attention. It was an account of an an experimental probe of the planet Jupiter, conducted in 1973 by psychics Harold Sherman and Ingo Swan, who allegedly took a mental jaunt to the planetary gas giant, narrowly beating the Pioneer 10 spacecraft that was already en route. It turns out these astronauts of sorts described a non-existent surface of Jupiter. They described it in some detail, which included fiery vents, sand dunes, mountains, volcanic peaks, and crystal-strewn valleys. As you're no doubt well aware from listening to Radio Parallax, the planet Jupiter, along with all of the gas giants in the solar system, in fact, have no solid surface, which kind of precludes fiery vents, sand dunes, and volcanic peaks, let alone crystal-strewn valleys. Psychic Ingo Swan also predicted on the CIA's, not to say the public's dime, that there were several very dark planets between Mars and Jupiter with life forms lesser or equivalent to ours. Of course, I do have to note in conjunction with that piece that studies of the asteroid series, which does in fact lie between Jupiter and Mars, does show evidence of organic molecules. A curious finding, but a long way from representing life forms which are lesser or equivalent to ours. For our stat of the day, how about this one from TheAtlantic.com? Apparently, 12 NFL teams have turned a profit on public subsidies for football stadiums alone, meaning they'd received more taxpayer money than they needed to build new facilities. Sound familiar? League-wide, taxpayers have provided about 70% of the capital costs for NFL stadiums. Sports stadiums are a giant scam by which rich owners bilk the public. We've talked about this many times in the program and unfortunately stood by as we watched the city of Sacramento make the same dumb mistake as so many other cities in the nation. I think for a good news item in today's program, I'm going to go with a suggestion from Mr. Edmund McMillan, which is that they fired Milo Yiannopoulos, evidently from Breitbart, for his advocacy of pedophilia. Evidently, he lost his book deal, too. But apparently some of the arch-conservative forces, which found him to be such a darling because of the way he used to P.O. liberals, had to back away from the suggestion that 13-year-old boys should be free to choose to have sex with older men of age, say, 25 or 28, etc. Evidently, Milo implied that he had done so as a youth and felt pretty good about the whole thing. Now, Radio Parallax has no way of confirming whether those rioters down in Berkeley hiding behind masks represented a crowd of 13-year-old boys. But you have to admit, it is possible. At this point, I think we will jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for amateur lawyers with the news that a minimally educated farmer in China 
who spent 16 years teaching himself law, won a $120,000 settlement from a chemical company that had dumped toxic waste on his village's farmland. Wang Enlin said, I knew I was in the right. Well, Mr. Wang may well have been, but it doesn't always translate into a victory in court, believe you me. I say believe you me simply because I've seen what happens in American courts over the past few decades. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week, both for free speech advocates and pedestrians, with the news that a Tennessee lawmaker has proposed making it legal for drivers to run over protesters who block public streets. The Republican-sponsored legislation would protect motorists from civil liability if a protester were injured, providing the driver exercise, quote, due care, unquote. The bill comes 10 days after a car ran into people at a Nashville protest against President Trump's travel ban. Similar driving laws have been proposed in five other states. And it was definitely an ugly week last week for ride-sharing with the news that a French businessman is suing Uber for $48 million, claiming that a glitch in the ride-sharing app's software gave his wife notifications of his comings and goings, leading to accusations of infidelity and a nasty divorce. From what we read, this man had a hard time explaining why he was making all of those Uber trips in the middle of the night to locations containing, to the two locations where evidently other women were located. And no, we don't know what's likely to happen in French courts because we don't know whether they're better or worse than America's. And finally, speaking of American courts, we're not sure it was a good or bad or ugly week last week for this news item, but we'll just present it as is. Apparently, a convicted identity thief in Florida is suing Verizon Wireless for not preventing him from committing the crime. James Kelly is serving a 10-year sentence for using his own ID to steal from another customer with the same name. Kelly claims Verizon's negligence in preventing the theft caused, quote, a loss of civil liberties and freedoms. He is seeking $72 million in damages. Speaking of the American judiciary, and we don't want to get too far into Trump land here in segment one, but I do think I should mention that a week or two ago, White House senior policy advisor Stephen Miller said in several TV interviews that the judiciary had taken far too much power and that our opponents would soon see that Trump's authority on national security issues, quote, will not be questioned, unquote. Writing in the Washington Post, Aaron Blake asked whether Miller is actually claiming that anything Trump does to protect national security is inherently constitutional and not subject to judicial oversight. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he's suggesting. Aaron Blake said that really is a massive claim to power, one that seriously undermines our tripart system of checks and balances and asks if anyone, liberal or conservative, is comfortable with that. We'd have to say that Radio Parallax is not. And one final item, we're not sure whether it was a good or a bad week for vengeance a couple weeks back, but we do know that Donald Trump supporters have started an online campaign urging like-minded coffee drinkers to use the name of the president-elect when ordering at Starbucks. Evidently, the goal is to force the young and presumably liberal baristas to call out Trump every time an order is ready. All right, let's do a little bit of science here. Apparently, NASA made a big old announcement this week about a star which evidently has seven Earth-like planets orbiting it. 
And they note three of these planets may be in the Goldilocks habitable zone. We have our doubts about this particular story because it makes a big to-do about the fact that three of these planets may be in the Goldilocks habitable zone, which has to be very, very narrow in such a dim star. Nevertheless, that's the claim that NASA's making, and we'll undoubtedly um, eagerly look forward to some follow-up on this story. Another follow-up item we ought to discuss is the, the question of using testosterone supplementation in older males. We've taken a very dim view of this in previous programs and would note that uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association published this week two studies on testosterone treatment in older men and concluded that, um, well, it may be bad for your heart, or at least bad for your uh, coronary artery plaques, and it doesn't seem to help your cognitive function. The people that are selling this crap on TV would like to imply that every single man out there over the age of 50 ought to be on a supplementation, and it just isn't so. And I would like to add with some gusto that as the proprietor of a clinic that treats erectile dysfunction, when the ads imply that it's going to help that too, um, well, that is vastly overstated to say the least. Testosterone has very little to do with the physiology of sexual function, but it does have something to do with desire. If your testosterone is low and your desire is out the window, then you probably should supplement. Otherwise, Let's just say the jury is very much out. All right, let's pull up our files here from New Scientist magazine and discuss <laughs> the concepts of fairness in monkeys and dogs. Turns out that researchers took a look at this and discovered that, uh, well, there is very good evidence that both do have some rudimentary concept of this. Well, I may be overstating it or anthropomorphizing it just a bit, but here's the deal. Article by Sam Wong notes that both pet dogs and monkeys show a preference for people who help others. And the results of these studies might explain the origins of our sense of morality. Peace notes that by age one, humans already start to judge others by how they interact. This led to suggestions that children have a kind of innate morality that predates their being taught how to behave. At the University of Kyoto in Japan, a comparative psychologist named James Anderson and colleagues wondered whether other species make social evaluations in a similar way. They began by testing whether capuchin monkeys would show a preference for people who help others. The capuchins watched an actor struggle to open a container with a toy inside. Then the actor presented the container to a second actor who either helped or refused to assist. Afterwards, both actors offered each capuchin food, and the monkey chose which offered to accept. When the companion had been helpful, the monkey showed no preference between accepting the reward from the struggler or the helper. But when the companion had refused to help, the monkey more often took food from the struggler. Dogs did the same. The team also took a look at the capuchin's attitude to fairness. In that test, actor A requested balls from actor B, who handed over three balls. Then actor B asked for balls from actor A, who either gave the three balls back or refused. Lastly, both actors then offered the monkeys a reward as before. Again, the monkeys had no preference when actor A had given back the balls, but chose actor B more often when A had not returned the balls. So the researchers suspect that these results um, indicate that monkeys and dogs make social evaluations in a similar way to human infants. 
And they speculate that in humans, there may be a sort of a basic sensitivity toward antisocial behavior in others. Pretty interesting. Something else we find fascinating is the possibility of using bacteria, let's just say good bacteria versus less good bacteria for numerous purposes. And one new application may be to fix body odor. Article by Jessica Hamselow, referring to research done at the University of California, San Diego by Chris Callowert, notes that uh, if you've got BO, you may blame the bacteria that are living in your armpits. Some people's bacteria cause body odor that evidently no deodorant can disguise. But if you replace them with bacteria from a less smelly person, you might solve the problem. Our bodies, after all, are crawling with bacteria, and the microbes that live on our skin vary by region. Armpit bacteria no doubt have a role in making the compounds that make sweat smell. A few years back, Dr. Callowert met a pair of identical twins, one of whom had a particularly bad body odor. Callowert suspected different mixes of armpit bacteria might be responsible for their different personal scents. So he tried swapping out the stinky twins' armpit bacteria with his twin brother's. The twin that didn't smell so bad refrained from washing for four days to allow bacteria deep in his armpits to rise to the surface. Meanwhile, the Stinky's twin scrubbed his pits with antibacterial soap every day for four days to remove as much of his armpit bacteria as possible. Callowert then transferred bacteria from the sweet-smelling twin to his brother using swabs and found that the man's body odor problem rapidly disappeared. Said Callowert, the effects have persisted for over a year now. His team has since reproduced this procedure with 17 other pairs, and in each case, one person in the pair had a body odor problem and the other was a close relative. Before and after the bacterial transplants, offensiveness of the previously smelly people was judged by a, quote, trained odor panel, unquote, of eight people. Out of the 18 pairs, 16 saw improvements in body odor within a month. So there you go. And uh, just for the record, Mr. Merlin states, Categorically, he is not volunteering to be a member of a trained odor panel. And uh, water is one of the favorite topics here at Radio Parallax, and we're not going to discuss at this moment how we have too much of it in California at the moment, but instead, what is in it? Again, we're going to go to New Scientist, September 17th issue from last year, that notes, this is not exactly news, that drug molecules are all around us in our Streams. A recent analysis of streams in the U.S. detected an entire pharmacy, diabetic meds, muscle relaxants, opioids, antibiotics, antidepressants, and more. Drugs have even been found in crops irrigated by treated wastewater. It's noted that the amounts that end up in your glass of water are minuscule, and they won't lay you low tomorrow, but someone prescribed multiple drugs is more likely to experience side effects, and risks rise exponentially with each drug taken by a person over 65. So the question is, could tiny doses of dozens of drugs have an impact on your health? We suspect that in homeopathic doses, the answer is probably no. But the concentrations of a lot of different things can reach significant levels. We reported, we reported on this program something like 10 years ago about the fact that uh, shrimp were observed to be responding to Prozac in the water. And Prozac was making them less anxious, shall we say, which made them... Uh, more of a target for predation. And this piece really does point out the need to have better wastewater treatment in the country. I know a lot of other nations are way ahead of us on this, and that's another topic we should probably take a look at in the future. As we explore the mysteries of water here on Earth, we should probably take a look out in the solar system and to note that 
the question of water on Mars is still baffling scientists. It's baffling scientists in a lot of ways. It's pretty clear that in the distant past, meaning like three or four billion years ago, Mars was a watery place. There's abundant evidence that water was everywhere. But no matter how scientists try to model the early Martian atmosphere and conditions in the solar system, they can't figure out how that could be. Of course, this is a common problem in science. <laughs> scientists can't figure out how something should be, and yet that something is, which means you need to work on your models and figure out why. But there's also another problem regarding Martian water, which is where did it all go? We mentioned this question of Martian water and ice to Emily Lakdawalla when she appeared in this program several months ago, and she sort of laughed and said, well, you know, the discovery of water on Mars goes back to the first time they pointed a telescope and saw the polar cap. We know there's water there and quite a bit of it, but the question is, is it under the surface? I think there's some very basic science we just don't understand about groundwater, be it groundwater on Earth or groundwater on Mars, because when we had William Hartman on the program many years ago, who'd written an excellent um, atlas uh, of the Martian surface, he pointed out even then that there's abundant evidence that there is subsurface water in the form of blocks of ice, permafrost, if you will, all over the place at the higher latitudes on Mars. But perhaps because of the great um, stink that still permeates Martian science dating back to Percival Lowell and his belief that Mars was covered with canals, uh, people are just very afraid to go there. By the way, that original, by the way, that original assumption of astronomer advocate Percival Lowell came from a mistranslation. Apparently an Italian astronomer, Schiaparelli, had observed straight lines on Mars that he described as canali, meaning channels. The word channel is not the same as the word canal. <laughs> it got mistranslated as canal. That meant, of course, that someone had dug out waterways and the whole big mess ensued. And just for the record, Radio Parallax has no evidence that the Martian water has, in fact, been siphoned off and sent to Southern California. Now let's talk a moment about wild animals on public land. We know some people who advocate avidly for the protection of wild horses on our public land, and that is no doubt a worthy cause, which we may talk about in the future, but for the moment I want to refer to a New Scientist article from the February 18th issue about bison on public lands. Yellowstone National Park, mostly in Wyoming, has a very large herd of wild bison, which were allowed to roam free in the national park. This has evidently irritated a lot of ranchers in nearby land because the bison sometimes will spread out and leave the park boundaries and go on to other public lands where they then graze and thus reduce the amount of food available for cattle. So evidently, every year, the National Park Service does a roundup, gathers up a bunch of bison, takes a look at them, checks them for brucellosis because they make the local ranchers make a big deal about how brucellosis has been spread to the cattle, which is kind of ironic because it was cattle that originally gave it to the bison. But um, when the dust settles on that whole issue, it turns out that it's more likely that elk have done so, and there's no documented cases in the wild of bison transmitting the disease. Nevertheless, as part of this roundup and culling that takes place, the bison are herded into chutes, blood samples are taken, and if they test positive for brucellosis, meaning they have antibodies to it, meaning the bison have been exposed to it, they are then sent to the slaughterhouse. Now, just because you have antibodies to something doesn't mean you have the disease. 
If you've ever taken a tuberculosis skin test, it's telling you that you have or have not been exposed to TB to where your body formed antibodies. That doesn't mean you have the disease. In the same fashion, these bison probably don't have the disease. Nevertheless, no distinguishing is made between exposure and disease, and they're sent up and turned into buffalo beef jerky, presumably. The herd in Yellowstone evidently sometimes expands out to 5,000 animals, and uh, the number that the Park Service has come up with as a healthy herd is 3,000, which according to advocates for the bison is a number that's pretty much just made up. Last year, sadly, 900 animals were slaughtered, which was short of the annual target of 1,000. But unfortunately, park officials announced the 2017 cull quota would be raised to 1,300, and it is already underway. This is something we really should stay on top of. All right, final science item for this segment is something we find baffling. I, I don't understand how this is possible, but... Again, according to a new scientist, in this case, the November 12th issue, Brazilian free-tailed bats have achieved speeds of more than 140 kilometers per hour in level flight, which makes them faster than any bird. Peace cites Gary McCracken of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, saying these are the fastest powered flight speeds documented yet in, in any vertebrate. Adding, we did not expect these results, even though the Brazilian free-tailed bats are known for their exceptionally fast flight. Now, previous studies suggest that birds fly faster than bats, which seems fair to me. How, how can they flap those leathery wings and go faster than a bird? If you're keeping track, the fastest bird on record for level flight is the common swift, which reaches 111 kilometers per hour. Now, I think that birds still probably do take their record when it comes to diving, because I know that uh, falcons and the like can hit speeds of like 200 kilometers per hour, but we're talking about level flight here. You know, it seems pretty clear we can learn a lot by mimicking how bats fly, and evidently scientists have done exactly that. But they did note that there are many ways in which the bats can subtly alter their flight characteristics, and scientists simply can't duplicate all of those, but they're doing the best they can, and, uh, well, we'll see where that leads. We're hoping it will not lead to small bat-like drones flying about your yard surveilling what's going on in the neighborhood. Speaking of technology run amok, as we close the segment, uh, there are some are actually seriously proposing that we can now use robo mini drones to take the ble- to take the place of bees in pollinating our crops. It is our hope that the same companies that are producing the neonicotinoids and other compounds that seem to be wiping out our bee populations will not be the ones that are also producing robo bees to replace them, because that would be a conflict of interest, wouldn't it? Anyway. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. (laughs) 